Welcome to Stars and Swords. I'm Alistair Stevens. In this, the first episode of our journey through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we're going to read through to the end of Chapter 5. It's a short reading and shouldn't take you too long, so if you haven't done that yet, I'd recommend that you do. As a word of introduction, I'm obviously going to be talking about the rich history and influence of Oxford fantasy, as embodied in particular by the members of the Inklings, the informal literary society formed in the 1920s at Oxford University in England. As some of you may know, I'm a particular fan of one of the members of the Inklings. I'm a particular fan of all of the members of the Inklings, I should say, but I do, I confess, have a clear favorite. So I have, during this recording, a glass vase on the table here in front of me and a stack of quarters, and each time I refer to Professor J.R.R. Tolkien... I'm going to put a quarter in the Tolkien jar. It should be more than a quarter, honestly, but I don't have silver dollars, and paper money would be a less satisfying auditory experience. Clive Staples Lewis is born in November of 1898 in Belfast, 20 years before Ireland would be partitioned into North and South. His father was a solicitor from Wales, his mother the daughter of a Church of Ireland priest. At the age of four, his pet dog was struck and killed by a car, and Lewis adopted its name as his own, Jaxi, later shortened to Jack. He read voraciously, briefly attended a boarding school in England and prep schools in England and in Ireland. In 1916, he's awarded a scholarship to University College Oxford, which he enters in the 1917 summer term at the age of 18. He joins the officers' training corps and within months is on his way to France to fight in the First World War. He serves in the Somme Valley, and is wounded in April of 1918. After he recovers, he is sent back to England and then demobilized in December of that same year. Now 20 years old, his pessimism and atheism reinforced and confirmed by his experiences in the war, he returns to his studies. He receives, ultimately, first-class honors in classical moderations in 1920, Literae Humanioris, forgive me if that is poorly pronounced, I have no Latin, which is the honors course in classics and philosophy and ancient history at Oxford in 1922, and English language and literature in 1923. He is elected a fellow of Magdalen College in 1925 and works there until 1954, when he is appointed the founding chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University, a position he would hold until his death in 1963. Lewis meets Professor Tolkien in 1926, and Tolkien is in part responsible for his return to theistic belief in 1929, the same year that sees the informal beginnings of the group known as the Inklings, and thereafter Lewis's conversion to Christianity in 1931. From this point, Lewis begins writing fiction, usually reflective of his religious and moral beliefs, and oftentimes allegorical. He writes quickly, very, very quickly, in fact, and doesn't often revise these manuscripts extensively. The Pilgrim's Regress is published in 33, the Space Trilogy between 38 and 45, the Screwtape Letters is published in 1942, the Great Divorce in 1945, and these are just his fictional works. He has also published 11 non-fiction books by this point. Then, on October the 16th, 1950, a slim volume for children entitled The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is published. If you are familiar with Narnia, you may well be wondering why we are beginning this podcast and our exploration of Lewis's fictional world with the second book in the series. After all, The Magician's Nephew, the sixth of the seven novels published five years after The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, 
is technically the first in the compiled chronological chronicles of Narnia. And to that I would say, nice try, George Lucas. It is absolutely within the author's power to write a prequel to an existing story, but I have to tell you, I don't feel obliged to obey that asserted chronology. In fact, I think it's destructive to our critical approach if we succumb to either our obedience to authorial authority or to our desire for answers, for facts, for a greater understanding of the lore of the fictional world and thus jump around in the creative timeline. Narnia was conceived and presented the way that it is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe without that extra history. So we can logically state that if Lewis had A, already conceived of the history, or B, thought that the history was relevant, then it would be in this book. If either A or B is untrue, if Lewis hadn't yet created the fictional history of Narnia, or if he thought that it was irrelevant to the story, then we owe it to the text of this novel to approach it on its own terms. We owe it to Lewis to try to understand and appreciate what was in his head, what he did deem important. Besides, we will, I'm sure, get the opportunity to read The Magician's Nephew at some point five or six years in the future, and then we will be able to admire it not just as an exposition of facts, not just as a hurdle that must be overcome in order to appreciate our real object of study, but as a piece of skilled revisionist storytelling in its own right. I apologize if some of my language around the writing of this story, of any story really, but obviously and specifically this object of our study, seems too painstaking. I think it is important to remember that writing a novel, that telling a story, that creating a fictional world, these are things which occur across time, which result from an ongoing creative act, which is itself self-reflexive. The first chapter informs the second in the mind of the author, as well as in the mind of the reader. And though we shouldn't fall into the trap of believing that books are composed in a strictly linear way, from A to B to C, starting with Once Upon a Time and ending with Happily Ever After, we ought to acknowledge that the process of writing is one of ongoing creation. There may be elements of discovery, certainly, but that all too often is the conscious mind discovering the process and product of the subconscious mind. Too often, in our media-saturated world, you will see the headline proclaiming that this writer reveals the truth about such and such a character. Reveals the truth, quote-unquote, in that sense means, at its best, writes something new about, or at its worst, has tyrannically made up something new and is insisting that you care about it. While prepping for this podcast, I paused to Google the phrase, quote, reveals the truth about because I knew that there would be up-to-date stories using that in the headline, and lo and behold, there are. Marvel is currently revealing the truth about Nightcrawler's parentage and the significance of Miss Marvel's bangles, and a certain author of a certain popular series about a wizard boy is revealing the truth about the origin of her most famous work, an act of self-mythologizing storytelling no less creative for all that it purports to be real. And to be clear... I'm not saying that these stories can't be good or interesting or that they can't change your understanding of a character or a setting or a story that you have previously enjoyed. I'm a big fan of Kurt Wagner, a.k.a. Nightcrawler, and I'd maybe like to read whatever new story Marvel is publishing about his backstory. But if we're going to talk seriously, with purpose, about fiction, and I hope we are, otherwise I'm unsure of the purpose of this podcast, then we have to treat the author with care. 
And when it comes to Marvel or Disney or Warner Brothers or whatever corporate entity holds the copyright to the intellectual property we're studying, well, that marketing machine ought to be ignored completely. We ought to listen, instead, to ourselves. We ought to listen to our fellow readers. We ought to listen to critics and scholars and academics. But most importantly, overwhelmingly importantly, we ought to listen to the text as it exists on the page in front of us. And that means, in part, that we are going to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as an originating text, as a beginning. And when we get to it, we'll read The Magician's Nephew as the revisionist prologue that it is. This is not dismissive. I genuinely and sincerely believe that this is the most respectful and authentic way of approaching both texts. So The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe begins, as Lewis recounted after the fact, with the mental image of a fawn carrying an umbrella and parcels in a snowy wood. Quote, This picture has been in my mind since I was about 16. Then one day, when I was about 40, I said to myself, let's try to make a story about it. In 1939, the year that Lewis turned 41, he takes in three young girls evacuated from London to escape Nazi bombing raids. The girls inspire him, and he begins working on a children's story with a very familiar setting. Though by this point, there's no concept of the fantasy world or the magical wardrobe. It's unclear how much of this book he completed, but he writes in 1947 that he destroyed the draft. The preceding year, though, in his essay Different Tastes in Literature, Lewis makes the following remark about his experiences reading poetry. Quote, I did not in the least feel that I was getting in more quantity or better quality a pleasure that I had already known. It was more as if a cupboard, which one had hitherto valued as a place for hanging coats, proved one day when you opened the door to lead to the garden of the Hesperides. End quote. This might sound familiar to readers of the book, of course, not just because of the obvious portal imagery, not just because of the cupboard, but because of the classical nymphs found in the world beyond. This we might take as our first allusion toward Narnia. In August of 1948, Lewis talks to the visiting American writer Chad Walsh about having begun a children's book. In March of 1949, he shows the first two chapters to fellow inkling Roger Lenslin Green. The manuscript of the novel says that it was completed later that same month. By the time that the book is published in October of 1950, Lewis had already completed Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and The Horse and His Boy. We can see why some writers might be envious of that prolificity. I should note here that I am not myself a Christian, and I am certainly neither a theologian nor a biblical scholar. It is not my intention to treat the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe as a Christian allegory, at least not in depth. In part, that's because I am not the right person for that job, and there are numerous podcasts out there on the internet which undertake that task with much more knowledge and sophistication. But also, I think that the allegorical aspects of this novel are less significant than are often suggested, at least as they apply to Christianity itself. Narnia is a melting pot in which Lewis's theological, cosmological, moral sensibilities are mixed with innumerable other elements and inspirations. Indeed, he himself presents the book not as a strict allegory, but rather as a, quote, supposal, which roots the events of the real world as Lewis understands them, and reimagines them as happening within what is to some degree a consistent imaginary frame. And the truth is, allegory or not, if this is a book worth reading, then it's a book worth taking on its own terms. 
If it only works because it is an allegory, then it's valuable only as an adjunct to a pre-existing text. And to suggest that this book is popular only as a secondary guidebook to accompany the Bible would be obviously fallacious, and we are too smart to fall into that trap. On a related note, if you know about Lewis's life, and particularly his career as a writer of Christian apologetics, then you might be wondering why I am not framing this introduction by discussing his famous 1948 debate with the philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe. The short answer is this. We are going to talk about Anscombe and the subject of that debate when we get to the end of this book, in part, but even then, that discussion will be brief. Because I think that the common wisdom about that debate, which Lewis lost in a defeat which is so often described as humiliating, that it starts to make you wonder if these bystanders are more impressed by Anscombe's arguments or somewhat smugly critical that Lewis could be bested by a mere woman. The common wisdom about that debate is that it breaks Lewis's spirit and that he stops writing apologetics and turns to children's fiction with his tail appropriately between his legs. This, categorically, isn't true. He continues to write apologetics well into the next decade, basically until the end of his life. And as I mentioned earlier, he's already been working on children's literature with a theological, instructive, somewhat allegorical bent for almost 10 years. So we will get to miracles and Anscombe later, but it is good to slay that particular dragon of misapprehension, particularly implicitly misogynistic misapprehension, early. One more tangent before we get going. Let's take a moment to talk about the nature of fantasy itself, and this, in light of the stack of quarters in front of me, may be expensive, so brace yourselves. J.R.R. Tolkien read the first chapters of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and did not like them at all. In Roger Lansling Green's 1974 biography of Lewis, Green attributes this quote to Tolkien. Quote, I hear you've been reading Jack's children's story, and really won't do, you know. I mean to say, nymphs and their ways, the love life of a fawn, doesn't he know what he's talking about? Though Tolkien is both dismissive and envious of the speed with which Lewis can write, and is, it must be said, also a little sensitive about Lewis's work borrowing at least inspiration, and in the case of the Space Trilogy, linguistic elements from his own work, this quote seems to be the root of his criticism of Narnia. It isn't considered. It isn't respectful. It isn't thorough. This is evident in the specific mention of the books found in Tumnus's home. Nymphs and Their Ways is clearly effecting a parody of modern scientific literature, a book of taxonomy and categorization. Interestingly, The Love Life of the Fawn is not one of the books listed in the novel, meaning that either Lewis revised the draft, excising that particular title, Tolkien misremembered that particular title, or the professor was making a very dry joke indeed. This is why it's better to take Tolkien's work as less of a fantasy story. The Hobbit is the most traditionally fantasy of his published work, The Lord of the Rings much less so, and everything else is really better considered to be a non-fictional narrative history of a fictional place, rather than fantasy as it's understood as a modern genre. This is one of the reasons that the many imitators of Tolkien's voice and style write bad books, because they aren't paying sufficient attention to what is being done, and crucially, why. Lewis, though, had no such desire, though we might read the later intent of the magician's nephew to be at least 
something of an attempt to bring comprehensibility to the backstory of his fantastical land. The Chronicles of Narnia are not, and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the most not, a history of Narnia. It is not a comprehensive, realistic secondary creation. It is not a world that can stand on its own, complete with internally consistent geography and society and economics, and crucially, it is not intended to be. The clash of reference and mode and tone and subject is not accidental, and to suggest that it is, I think, is to give too little respect to Lewis. It's not Tolkien, but it's not meant to be. And to be clear, I don't think that Tolkien is critical of Lewis because his work isn't Tolkienian per se, but rather because Tolkien believes that this is simply what storytelling is for. It's not that Narnia is bad, it's that it betrays its potential, it betrays its higher calling as a sub-creative act. And I know what you're thinking. For someone who doesn't want to talk about a biographical interpretation of the text, I'm sure making a lot of claims about what Lewis is or is not doing, and to that, I say ten points to Ravenclaw. In 1967, though, four years after Lewis died, Roland Barthes published his seminal text, The Death of the Author, which sought to create a new kind of criticism, a new kind of relationship between reader and text unmediated by the presence of the author. And that, as you can probably tell from my tone, is a good thing. If a text is worth reading, it's worth reading on its own. And the intrusion of the author's biography on our understanding of any story is only going to devalue the text and overvalue context, as well as being, per Bart and in conversation with notions of authority in our public and artistic spaces, an inherently political statement. But it's not quite that simple, because the removal of the author as a presence in the text can oftentimes leave a space which has to be filled. Two years after Bart, French philosopher Michel Foucault offers a compromise by recognizing the author function within certain texts. That is, we understand that there was an author, that the author had an intent, and that the author would pursue that intent through various textual and metatextual strategies but that we separate that function, we separate the author of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as we experience that author in the text itself from C.S. Lewis' biographied human being. Not every text, per Foucault, has an author. Red Riding Hood doesn't seem to have an author function, for example, nor does a shopping list. And maybe, we might argue, a text in which the authorial voice is coexistent with the narrative voice may not have a meaningful author function either at least not one that we can readily separate from the narrator. There's a lot more to Foucault's argument. There's a lot more to Bart's argument too, lest I be accused of playing favorites. That this is enough of a gloss that we can meaningfully move on to discussing the author function, the Lewis avatar, who exists in relation to the text in front of us, because that function is, I promise you, not only going to be important, but is, I believe, one of the best things about the book. And just to set this in its proper context, Let's remember that Lewis wrote one of the most important and, to my mind, best essays on the function of criticism ever. It was called, appropriately enough, On Criticism, and is collected in a posthumous volume called Of Other Worlds, which is well worth a read. And so, almost 20 minutes into this podcast, let's open the book. We open with the dedication to Lucy Barfield, the daughter of fellow inkling Owen Barfield, Lucy was born in November of 1935, and Lewis was her godfather. 
By the time Lewis sends the first completed manuscript bearing this dedication to her in May of 1949, she's 13 years old. And as the dedication notes, quote, You are already too old for fairy tales, and by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. The idea that she will one day be, quote, old enough to start reading fairy tales again implies that being too grown up for fantasy fiction is a temporary condition, though it isn't exactly clear what is meant here. Yes, Lucy has outgrown the book in the first instance, but will eventually grow back to it. And we might be tempted to think that Lewis is referring to her dotage. We come from a childlike state and return to a childlike state, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Lewis contrasts her return to fairy tales with his own theoretically advanced age, quote, too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say. It is tempting to rely on our books of biography here and to note that Lewis rejects his Christian faith in his early teens, only to return to it in his early 30s. Is there an implied parallel here with Lucy Barfield's openness to fairy tales and by extension to everyone's relationship to wonder and awe and magic, and by an extension to that extension, perhaps an overlap between our notions of magic and faith. Are we invited to understand that a receptivity to fantasy and a certain faith in God are at least similar, or operate on similar cycles, or might indeed be the same thing if they are not merely reflective of similar conditions of being? It's possible, but this right here is the trap of the biographical reading. We're applying something that we know from outside the text to the text itself, so we're naturally tempted to believe that we've solved the riddle, and thus we're less inclined to pay attention. So instead of relying on Lewis's personal history to try to derive meaning from this forward, let's acknowledge that the dedication suggests a temporary alienation from fairy tales in Lucy's life, and keep in mind themes of age and aging, as we move forward. This is the heart of close reading as a discipline. Don't look at each fragment as a riddle, but look at it as part of a map that will help you explore the furthest boundaries of the text, that will hint at vistas as yet unseen. From there, we move into the book proper. And now might be as good a time as any for me to give a brief precy of what happens in the reading this week, just in case somehow you've never read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but you've stuck it out with this podcast this far. One quick note, and an apology for jumping the timeline. Technically, we don't get a surname for our plucky young heroes until the voyage of the Dawn Treader, but it's very helpful to have an easy way of referring to them en masse, so I'm occasionally going to use the term Pevensey Children to refer to them, even though this novel doesn't offer that name. I hope you'll forgive me. We're introduced, then, to those Pevensey Children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy who have been evacuated from London because of the threat of bombing and are moved in with an old professor in a home in the country. Lucy, the youngest, explores the depths of an old wardrobe and finds herself in a snowy forest in the company of a package-carrying umbrellaed fawn. She has tea with said fawn, Tumnus, who seems friendly but then reveals that he is in the employ of the White Witch, that he is watching for human incursions into the land of Narnia. Lucy returns to the wardrobe, only to learn that no time has passed on the other side, and her siblings do not believe her about her adventures. Days pass, until during a game of hide-and-seek, Edmund follows Lucy into the wardrobe once more, and also emerges into that magical forest, but rather than Tumnus, he meets with the Queen of Narnia, who offers him magical food and drink, and asks him to bring his siblings to her home. She leaves, and Edmund is reunited with Lucy, but doesn't tell her about the Queen. Back in the real world, he lies about his experience in Narnia, 
and Lucy is upset that no one believes her, until, hiding from the housekeeper days later, the Pevensey children all go through the wardrobe together. And that is the end of chapter 5. The novel begins, then, with a very traditional opening. Here are the names of our main characters, a brief overview of their circumstances, and an indication as to what this story will do. We are telling rather than showing, and the narrative voice asserts itself through the use of parentheticals in the first paragraph. I know the names of the servants, but they aren't important. Lucy is the youngest child, Edmund the second youngest. This conversational style emphasizes both the fairy tale tonality of the opening, as though this is a story being told in the oral tradition, and reassures the reader that there is a guiding narrative voice that is present, that exists above or at least beside the story as it's being told. We are immediately made to feel safe. After saying goodnight on the first evening, the boys go into the girls' room and we move into attributed dialogue from Peter. This is our transition into a more conventional narrative tone, though that parenthetical narrative voice will continue throughout the entire novel, offering additional insight and clarification for the children in the audience. This is the narrator extension of the author function, and we'll consider its use as we move forward, though a good thesis at this point, and a fairly common use of this kind of voice in this kind of story, is to make the story seem as though it is on the fringes of what is an acceptable story for readers of this age. That is, it gives the sense of being almost but not quite transgressive, while also reinforcing the story's boundaries. The reader is being trusted, but also protected, which is a seductive thing for the precocious young readers in the audience. So let's talk about the setting of this first part of the story. Obviously, there are narrative demands which inform the choice of a rambling old house in the countryside, far from distraction or intervention, largely empty, full of mysteries. There are servants, which we may think of more accurately in the modern sense as staff rather than live-in maids and the like, and a housekeeper to function as a practical antagonist. One of the most interesting things about the professor himself is the degree to which he overlaps with Lewis as we understand him, an unmarried professor who lives in the country, who opens his house to evacuees. It seems he's about Lewis's age and perhaps even has something of his demeanor, and certainly something of his intellectual rigor, as we see in the last chapter of today's reading. The other thing that we get from the setting, however, is a sense of safety and provision. Yes, the house may be intimidating, and indeed Lucy is intimidated by the professor himself when they first arrive, but we are given an old-world sense of comfort, not just in the way that there is physical safety and warm beds and good food and the like, but in the sense that this is a well-ordered middle-class home in a world that, though there are shadows to the east, still respects such things. In that way, the Professor's Home fulfills a similar narrative function to Bag End in Tolkien's The Hobbit. This isn't just safe and comfortable. It's indicative of a world in which safety and comfort are easy and natural. And we will see the extension of that when Lucy first transits into Narnia. Thirdly, thirdly, I hesitate to number my subpoints on any given topic because way leads on to way, and I can't be completely sure that I've said only two things before this one, but here goes thirdly, the relocation of the Pevensey children to the countryside brings them inescapably close to the magical world of fairy, which in many stories, particularly in this period, exists in opposition to the urban environment. We see this during the children's first night when they're talking about the landscape outside, mountains and forests and wild animals of all kinds. 
Our introduction to the children is swift and effective. Lucy is concerned about doing the right thing and not getting in trouble. Edmund is bad-tempered and snide, though it's interesting that we get a pseudo-parenthetical explanation of his behavior at first, rather than just presenting him as innately mean-spirited, we get an excuse for his behavior. Susan is gentle and positive and trying to provide some structure for her younger siblings, though yes, the temptation to step into her absent mother's role and assume some authority is also certainly there. Peter is intrepid, a natural leader. We can see that in the way that he speaks in short declarative sentences, often confirming his own opinion of things in a rhetorical appeal to authority. Quote, We've fallen on our feet, he says, and no mistake, this is going to be perfectly splendid. The old chap will let us do anything we like. This is good, he says, and there can be no dispute. This is, and perfectly splendid, are statements of fact, not opinion. He is the leader, and thus he speaks in this way. He speaks in this way, and thus he is the leader. Again, we can see a connection here between authority and age. We can see most powerfully in Peter and Susan the desire to grow, the desire to become adult, and the desire to claim that authority to which they are fated. Interestingly, the timeline that Lewis writes later in his life, which is the source of the children's ages, tells us that Peter is 13, Susan 11, Edmund 10, and Lucy 8. Now, of course, we're going to be skeptical about this outside text, quote, revealing the truth, unquote, about this story. But what is striking is that we don't need those timelines, because the ages are communicated right there on the page. I suspect many readers their first time through the book would put the children at exactly the right age. When the children are excitedly listing things they hope to see the next day, by the way, note that Lucy and Edmund have already sorted themselves into their wizard school houses. Lucy hopes to see a badger and Edmund a snake. This isn't just a coincidence. I would suggest you'll note that Peter lists regal, majestic animals, uh, an eagle, a stag, hawks, and Susan hopes for a quick, intelligent fox. Is there a read here about Susan's eventual fate and the connotation of the female fox with a rapacious sexuality? No, I, I don't think so, but it is an interesting echo. I should maybe warn you in advance that I am probably going to be more defensive of Susan, or at least more sensitive to a kindly reading of Susan, than many critics of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because she is my favorite, and ultimately the Chronicles of Narnia will do her dirty. But that is a conversation for another time. The account of the children exploring the house suggests that there is a magic leaking into the mundane world. It feels unreal in the way that childhood explorations feel, certainly, but the specifics are odd. The room hung in green with a harp in the corner feels decidedly Irish, which could be a reference to Lewis's upbringing, of course, but also speaks to the Irish fairy tradition. We have steps up and steps down and doors leading to balconies that are all conventional enough though the library rooms with the books larger than a Bible in church, noting the significance here with the suggestion that larger books contain other stories of equal or greater import than the aforementioned Bible, for example, fictionalized supposals or allegories about the life of Christ. But then, of course, we have the mystery of the empty wardrobe room itself, and the narrator's masterful mention of the dead blue bottle on the windowsill, a tiny detail that demonstrates and magnifies how empty the room otherwise is. The presence of that blue bottle somehow demonstrates the emptiness more than a strictly empty room would. 
This is the moment when Narnia fans are tempted to overlook the text in front of us and explain why the wardrobe is special and where it came from and why it makes perfect sense that it's in this room by itself. But that story is not this story, and I'd hate to lose the otherworldly feeling of this otherwise commonplace piece of furniture. The inclusion of the looking glass in the door is also interesting. If we're primed to think already of realms of fairy and other worlds than these, since reflections are often associated with fairy tales, as well as the obvious surface representation of a world which seems real but isn't. Lucy investigates the wardrobe, demonstrating courage and caution in good measure. And we should note this is the first appearance of the narrative voice's insistence that good children should leave the doors of wardrobes open if they are exploring. Again, in parentheses, quote, She had, of course, left the door open, for she knew it would be a very silly thing to shut oneself into a wardrobe. End quote. From there, we meet Tumnus. The image of the fawn is immediately arresting, particularly because he's incongruously cloaked in a certain mid-century modernity. A snazzy red scarf, an umbrella, brown paper packages. This is where Tolkien must have lost his mind. And not just because we're being given no idea where Tumnus was, where he got the packages, who manufactured the umbrella, so on and so forth, but because this is a fawn, a slightly bowdlerized Roman version of an ancient Greek satyr, a lusty bestial god of the woods who took pleasure in excesses of gluttony and libidinous pleasures. None of that from Tumnus. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, incidentally, won't enter the public domain in the UK for another 10 years as of this recording. It won't enter the public domain in the US until 2045. Having seen what recently happened with Winnie the Pooh, I can only imagine the sophomoric, dark, and edgy adaptations will be treated to when that happens. So, three things are happening here with Tumnus. The first is that the fawn is a creature of myth, but not, crucially, traditional English myth. He is not an elf or a fairy or a grindolo or a boggart. He is taken instead from the Greco-Roman classical tradition, which is something that this book will do repeatedly to interesting effect. Second, he is safely modernized. He is civilized by the addition of the scarf and the umbrella. Thirdly, he is made safe as an object of curiosity by making him, on the one hand, immediately startled, and on the other, possessed of polite manners. Quote, and when he saw Lucy, he gave such a start of surprise that he dropped all his parcels. Goodness gracious me, exclaimed the fawn. End quote. His manners are confirmed at the beginning of the second chapter, as are Lucy's confirming her role as a good child. They exchange good evenings. Lucy is apparently adapting quickly to the nighttime environment after exploring the professor's house in the early morning. And then the fawn asks if Lucy is a daughter of Eve. This is... Such an interesting term, and of course is combined ultimately with Son of Adam, and we are going to get into the gender dualism in this book, and not just in that like critical liberal way in which we condemn the outdated use of essentialist gender binaries, but because something interesting is happening here within the symbolic frame of those dualist roles. Sons of Adam and Daughters of Eve are different. We'll put a pin in it until later, but it is certainly something to be thinking about as we move forward. By the way, it is interesting that we, as members of the popular culture, as readers of this book, so fully internalize Lucy's use of the word Mr. that the narrative voice echoes her, rather than using the name that Tumnus offers himself, 
unadorned. He is not Tumnus. I am fighting the urge every time I say Tumnus in this podcast not to say, of course, naturally, respectfully, Mr. Tumnus. Lucy accompanies Tumnus back to his home, and we'll keep in mind how his offers of food and warmth work on Lucy, contrasted with Edmund's first experience of Narnia, and we get the description of the cave. We can see here an evocation, if not of the beginning of the Hobbit per se, then of a similar creative impulse, presumably with similar intent. The cave is dry and clean and comfortable. It is warm. There is food. There are symbols of civilization, the books, of course, implying that Tumnus is literate. There's the portrait of the elder fawn above the fireplace, implying a proper esteem for family and lineage and the creative arts. The books, as previously mentioned, are in two modes. The first is a pseudo-academic scientific tone covering nymphs and their ways and the life and letters of Silenus. Silenus is a figure from classical mythology who is most often a companion of Dionysus and is associated with musical creativity, prophetic ecstasy, and drinking. A lot of drinking. The second mode that we see is the speculative mythologizing of humans, as seen in Men, Monks, and Gamekeepers, a study in popular legend, and Is Man a Myth? In both modes, the joke is the same. We are inverting the staid and academic language that is used for real things with a more playful, imaginarily provocative language used for fiction and for myth. These books are another element which confirms Tumnus's civility, which is... Yes, a kind of a joke for the adults in the audience who might be expecting something different from a satyr who, we learn in the next paragraph, consorts with dryads and nymphs and Bacchus himself. Given the deliberate inclusion of these elements, and others that we'll see later in the story, it might be tempting to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a story about a much more adult, dangerous, lusty place that has been safely sanitized for children by this narrative frame in the same way that stories of Robin Hood or Disney princesses have also been battlerized over the years. I can't completely refute that interpretation, but at the same time, I don't think that there's a real benefit to that reading, besides being edgy for edgy's own sake. I'm more inclined, given the moral schema that's presented even in this chapter with Tumnus's heartbroken confession of his own duplicity, that Narnia really is this genteel and civilized, and that the stories that have filtered back to us in the real world about satyrs and nymphs have been exaggerated. We'll have more opportunity to talk about Lucy's faith in and forgiveness of Tumnus in the chapters to come. This is a major theme of the book, both faith and forgiveness. But we should pause to talk about Tumnus's introduction of the White Witch. We're told that she has all of Narnia under her thumb and, quote, it's she that makes it always winter, always winter and never Christmas. Think of that, end quote. A crucial element of the plot, at least as it fits with Lewis's Christian conception of the world, is that the world itself cannot be evil because it was created by a benevolent god. Thus, winter cannot be evil. And sure enough, we're told that the White Witch didn't make it winter, but rather makes it always winter and never Christmas. The season itself is not bad. We can prove this by thinking of the Christmas card charm of our introduction to Tumnus to see how beautiful and peaceful and natural the winter can be. But rather, it's the forestalling of the natural cycle that is the evil act. We'll revisit that, too, in the chapters to come. Tumnus escorts Lucy back to the wardrobe, despite the danger to himself, and Lucy emerges back into the real world to discover that, rather than hours, mere moments have passed. 
The others investigate the wardrobe too, but find that it is a completely normal piece of furniture with no secret portals to magical realms. Though we don't have enough information to build a theory as to why this might be, we'll note that the first time Lucy goes into the wardrobe, she isn't expecting to find a door to Narnia. When Peter goes in and knocks on the back wall to prove its solidity, he is actively searching for it. That contrast between an active desire to enter Narnia and a passive stumbling into Narnia will be important. A few days later, when the weather has once again restricted the children to the interior of the house, Lucy returns to the wardrobe. But this time, quote, She did not mean to hide in the wardrobe, because she knew that would only set the others talking again about the whole wretched business. But she did want to have one more look inside, for by this time she was beginning to wonder herself whether Narnia and the Fawn had not been a dream. The house was so large and complicated and full of hiding places that she thought she would have time to have one look in the wardrobe and then hide somewhere else. So not only at this point is Lucy doubting her memory of her experience in Narnia, but she explicitly has no intention to return there, promising herself that she will take a quick look just to confirm perhaps the extent of her experience, possibly even to confirm the absence of a portal to Narnia, and then go elsewhere to continue the game in the real world. Then, when Edmund follows her, he too is not expecting any kind of magical portal. Instead, he expects to find Lucy hiding. You'll note, too, again, the narrative voice praising Lucy for keeping the wardrobe open after she goes inside and then criticizing Edmund as being foolish for closing it. Regardless, the magic works, and he too finds himself in Narnia, though separated from Lucy. There is so much great characterization of Edmund through this section. He really is awful. He offers an apology to Lucy, a vocal apology to Lucy, only because, quote, he also did not much like being alone in this strange, cold, quiet place. And perhaps he's right to be fearful of this place, because he's only been in Narnia for a moment when he hears the sound of sleigh bells, and then he meets the Queen of Narnia, the White Witch herself. We'll note that the elements of the witch's appearance here, the sled, the reindeer, the dwarf, even her pale attire and skin tone, are not the classical Greco-Roman symbols that we saw in Lucy's first visit to Narnia as embodied by Tumnus. These are more Scandinavian or Teutonic. That is, they belong to an older Western and Northern European tradition, which invites us to immediately oppose the vulgar traditions of Europe, this unnamed dwarf on a sled, for example, versus the more refined and civil Tumnus. This, we might speculate, speaks to Lewis's affection for the classics, but it's early to be making such declarative statements about the story's biases. Much is made of the Turkish delight that is offered to Edmund by the White Witch, perhaps most significantly that it has caused whole generations of children to grow up believing that Turkish delight is the best-tasting thing in the world, and not, for example, a disappointing rose-flavored goo. And, of course, to children growing up during the war... Sweets, particularly in abundance, would have been a rare and precious thing. Sugar is rationed in the UK from January of 1940, and would still have been a familiar restriction to children reading this book in 1950. So on the one hand, the Turkish delight works as it is, a sweet, unctuous treat, and a lot of it. But, crucially, it is also exotic, as is the goblet of unnamed beverage which the witch first presents to Edmund. Though, from the description... It's often thought that it is a high-quality hot chocolate, very different from the red-label Cadbury economy drinking chocolate prevalent during the war. Whether it's chocolate or not, though, the fact that it is itself unfamiliar speaks to its exoticism, just like the Turkish delight. 
This ought to be contrasted again with Tumnus, who serves Lucy extremely traditional and comforting and modestly middle-class English food, a boiled egg, three different preparations of toast, and a sugar-topped cake. Still a welcome respite from the rigors of the wartime diet, for sure, but also very safe, very familiar. The enchanted Turkish delight weaves its magic on Edmund, of course, and the witch isn't content with one means of manipulating him. Instead, she offers him the role of prince and his brothers and sisters, dukes and duchesses. This formal invocation of a feudal aristocratic hierarchy is an interesting one, particularly as a starting point for our discussions of regality as we move forward. Certainly, Edmund's domination over Peter will be a meaningful lever on his actions. The witch leaves, having told Edmund what he must do in order to earn his reward upon his return to Narnia, and then Lucy emerges from the forest, fresh from lunch with Tumnus. She tells Edmund about the witch, and he is chilled. One interesting thing about Lucy's account of the witch, particularly considering the Greco-Roman-European conflict that we have inferred, is that the moral landscape of the book doesn't seem to admit categories of purely good or purely evil. Quote, she calls herself the Queen of Narnia, though she has no right to be queen at all, and all the fauns and dryads and naiads and dwarves and animals, at least all the good ones, simply hate her. So despite the recent appearance of the dwarf on the sled, who does go unnamed in the novel, though I know he has a name in the later movie adaptation, despite the appearance of the dwarf on the sled, despite what we might expect from fauns and dryads and naiads, Lucy implies that there are good dwarves. And by implication, not all the fauns and dryads and naiads not even the animals, perhaps, are necessarily good. Indeed, Tumnus signed up to work for the witch, though he repented. But since what defines good or evil in Lucy's mind at that moment is whether or not the person hates the witch, it's possible that Tumnus can never really be categorized as evil. We return to the real world then, and Edmund offers his denial of Lucy's account, telling Peter and Susan that they were merely playing pretend in the wardrobe, we're given the direct reason for this at the end of the previous chapter. Quote, he would have to admit that Lucy had been right before all the others, and he felt sure that the others would all be on the side of the fawns and the animals, and he was already more than half on the side of the witch. He did not know what he would say or how he would keep his secret once they were all talking about Narnia. This makes sense and is consistent with his actions, though it doesn't get him closer to taking the others to Narnia as the witch commanded, though perhaps had he intentionally lent his siblings into the wardrobe to return to the witch, the portal to Narnia would not have been present. But it does give us an excellent perspective on Edmund's character. He is not merely greedy. He is not merely desirous of power. He is also, crucially, cowardly. He does not want to tell the truth. He does not want to be judged. Peter, though, identifies a consistency in Edmund's awful behavior, pointing out that even at school, Edmund delights in picking on those who are smaller than him. Again, we're seeing that desire for power over others. In what is probably my favorite sequence in this first reading, Peter and Susan go to talk to the professor, who asks them if Lucy lies or if Lucy is mad, and since she doesn't lie and isn't mad, then she must be telling the truth. This is an echo of Lewis's argument about the divinity of Christ, who in some Christian traditions states outright that he himself is God. Lewis offers then the trilemma, sometimes known as lunatic, liar, or lord. If Christ says that he is God, and if Christ does not lie, and if Christ is not in some way mad or deceived, then the only rational conclusion is that he is, in fact, God. It is 
shaky bit of Christian apologetics, honestly, because it's neither as philosophically robust as you might like, and it's dependent on several granted terms coming in with it. If Christ makes this claim, if he doesn't lie, if he isn't mad, and we might add a fourth term, if he isn't simply wrong or misled, then it's likely to be true. But if this isn't completely convincing as a theological argument, it's a very sweet bit of analysis to apply to Lucy and her story of a frosty forest and a friendly fawn. Quote, Logic, said the professor half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies or she is mad or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies and it's obvious that she is not mad. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. End quote. This is a classic appeal to authority, both the temporal authority of the professor, master of this house and surrogate foster father to these evacuee children, and the greater modern authority of logic and rationality. Using logic and rationality to prove the existence of magic is a very sly bit of conjuration on Lewis's part. And this is the point in the podcast where I glance nervously at the clock and realize that I have run even longer than I intended. Since we're basically at the end of the reading and what matters about the return to Narnia is what comes next, let's wrap up here. Next week, we're going to read chapters 6 to 12 inclusive, which takes us through the appearance of Father Christmas, through the meeting with Aslan, all the way to Peter's battle against the wolf. If you would like to read more about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you would like some more backstory on some of the points that I've raised during this podcast, you can find my personal bibliography in the show notes. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the book, the topics I've covered this week, the questions or theories you may have, and your thoughts on the podcast itself. Is there something about the contrast between Greco-Roman antiquity of classicalism and the European Scandinavian tradition? Are you personally convinced by the trilemma as it's applied to Lucy? Do you think that Tolkien had a point about Lewis's worldbuilding? Which of the Pevensey children, perhaps most importantly, is your favorite? You can reach me by emailing starsandswordspod at gmail.com or visiting starsandswords.com. Or, better yet, by joining the Next Word Discord by going to patreon.com slash nextword and pledging your support. The more support I get, the more time I can spend on these podcasts, and the deeper, wider, and further we can explore together. Also, supporting Next Word on Patreon gets you access to a bonus episode for this podcast every month. This month, for example, I'm going to spend an hour or so talking about that 2005 movie adaptation, which will be a fun experience. Since the podcast is just beginning, too, I'd appreciate it if you could spread the word to your friends, to your social media communities, to your book clubs and local librarians, friends and enemies, fawns and witches. I'll be back next week with the next part of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and that's when things get really interesting. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you for coming with me on this journey. And so for a time, it looked as if all the adventures were coming to an end. But that was not to be. I'll see you next week. Thank you.